Well, um, hopefully, I know that some of the things that we've been talking about this weekend has been challenging for some of you. Uh, hopefully, challenging in the right way in terms of your spiritual walk with the Lord. And that's what we hope and pray long before this retreat began. And my wife and I were praying for this retreat. And we were praying that God would use the Word of God as He will in the lives of people. Sometimes that uh, uh, the Word of God disturbs people. And then other times it comforts people. And then there are times where it instructs them and edifies them and helps to build them up even further in the Lord. And, and we hope something like that's happened to you uh, through this weekend. Now, the last thing that we have to deal with after talking about what is biblical counseling and then what is the theological basis of biblical counseling. And then we talked about guilt. And then last night we talked about repentance. This is the third area of practically applying this in relationship to forgiveness. Now, we only have about 44 minutes left. Okay, And I have to pack an awful lot of stuff in the next 44 minutes. So this is where you really need to fasten your seatbelt and put your crash helmets on because you're going to have to listen. If, if you let me talk fast, you're going to have to listen fast. Okay, So you're going to have to do that and we'll, we'll work out this cooperation between us. Alright, what are we dealing with when it comes to the issue of forgiveness from the Scripture? And in order to get into this, let me see if we can talk a little bit about this is our third aspect. First, we dealt with guilt. And then the second, we dealt with repentance. Now we're dealing with the issue of forgiveness. Let's talk about forgiveness. Um, both uh, Dr. John MacArthur and Dr. Jay Adams has written books on forgiveness. And I would recommend that if you have a chance sometime to pick up those two books and read them. And, and then keep your Bible close by and carefully examine what's being said in those. Because a lot of things I'm going to be talking about are... Um, some, in some cases, excerpts from those books, and in some cases, um, further elaboration on what the Scripture says about this very, very important area. Now, the primary Greek verb translated forgive is a Greek term called, or pronounced, aphiomi. Aphiomi. It means to send away. That's really what it means. To send away. When you practice forgiveness, that's a good description. You send something away. You release it. Um, so, in reference to sin, sometimes forgiveness means pardon. To pardon someone. To send it away. To release it. But forgiveness has also rightly been described as a promise. There is a promissory aspect of forgiveness in the Bible. Because when God forgives, He goes on record. When God forgives, He goes on record. He doesn't just stand at the far reaches of the universe and emote forgiveness towards us. Mm, I forgive you. He doesn't do that. What does He do? God goes on record and says... We're forgiven. Let me give you an example of this. Grab your Bible. Let's go over. Have your Bible handy. Let's go over to Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 34. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 34. When God forgives, He goes on record. Now, Jeremiah here, the prophet, is talking about the new covenant to come, which now we understand was summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but... 
in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 34. Well, at the end of that verse, he says, the Lord speaks, and Jeremiah is speaking for the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's God going on record. So when God forgives, that's what He says He does with our sins. I will remember their sin no more. No more. Now what's interesting here is this phraseology is not in the Mosaic or the Abrahamic Covenant. But it is in the New Covenant. Wow. So this is definitely, that's a new aspect of the New Covenant. The fact that he goes on record saying, I'll forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, turn your Bible. This is not the only place that this is mentioned. Let's go over to Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 25. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 25. Just one book in front of the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 43. And we're interested in verse 25. Here's the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Again, the context is the new covenant. He says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Now the question comes at this point, does God forget our sins? The answer is, no, that's not what he says. You've got to understand what he's saying. If God forgets sins of his people, then he's, forgetting, he's forgotten a good part of his Bible. Because a good part of his Bible is about the sins of his people. If he's forgotten them, he no longer uh, is able to recall them in his memory. No, God does not forget our sins. What does He do? Well, the Bible is very explicit in both the Jeremiah passage and the Isaiah passage. He says, I will remember your sins no longer. Now, not remembering and forgetting are two different things. Forgetting is a very passive thing. Like, let's say... Some of you that are old enough to have lived a number of years, 30 or 40 years ago, you lived in a a specific location. Some of you may be able to remember the phone number you had back then. Some of you may be able to remember the address of where you lived back then. Um, But then the chances are you've just forgotten it. Why have you forgotten it? Because you've not used it. You've not used it. But God doesn't forget anything. He remembers everything. But what does this mean? Well, forgetting is very passive. Not remembering is very active. He chooses not to remember our sins against us any longer. Now, that's very deliberate. He doesn't forget our sins. The issue is, He doesn't hold those sins against us. 
He remembers them against us no longer. Now, how did that come about in terms of the history of redemption? The answer is it came about as a result of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when our sins were placed on Him and He took our sins, now... And then we, in turn, were clothed in His righteousness. Now He sees us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So He chooses not to hold our sins against us because of the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, which was a part of that new covenant. Wow. That's phenomenal. And in that, you ought to, and you have good cause to, rejoice until your dying breath, right? Because those sins are no longer remembered against you. If one of them was remembered against you, you'd be going to hell. If just one sin. And we're multiple sinners every day. Every day. So, we could say this. If that's true, then what about our, the way we practice forgiveness? Now notice this. Remember what the Isaiah uh, passage said. Remember what the Jeremiah passage says. And let's go over to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Because that brings us right in the New, New Testament. It brings us right in the middle of the New Covenant. He's addressing New Testament Christians. He says... Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Notice this. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, notice the Apostle Paul says here in Ephesians 4.32 that our forgiveness of one another is built upon the same model of God's forgiveness of us. You follow that? And if that's true, then we could rightly define forgiveness as this. So the best definition of forgiveness really is a promise of pardon. That's a great definition of forgiveness. It is a promise of pardon. So, when it comes to forgiveness, God's forgiveness... Man, because of his sinfulness, needs desperately, his only hope is forgiveness from God. So man needs forgiveness from God both before salvation, in order to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and after salvation, in order to deal with the fatherly and son issues that occur when we sin, even as believers... Now, the forgiveness needed before salvation could, and this is what theologians call judicial forgiveness. Because prior to salvation, God, our primary relationship to God is that God is our judge. Uh, declaring us guilty of sin... Unless we claim Jesus Christ as our Savior. Then when we claim Jesus Christ as our Savior, who took our punishment when He died on the cross, now His righteousness is ours, so He declares us righteous forever, delivering us from eternal condemnation. Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. So He declares us righteous because of what Christ did. That is what we call... Judicial forgiveness, because our primary relationship to God prior to salvation is that of 
God is our judge. Now, we also need forgiveness after salvation. Which can be called, and theologians call this, parental forgiveness. Prior salvation, we are not one of God's children. After salvation, we are one of God's children. So our primary relationship with God radically changes from that of being God is our judge to now God is our Father. That changes. God is now our parent. He is our loving Father who wants to free us from temporal discomfort of His chastening. That doesn't mean that He won't send us through hardship in life in order to bring about greater holiness. Hebrews 12 is pretty clear about that. Hebrews 12 verses 7 through 11 talks about why why do we have to endure hardship even as children of God? And the answer is so that we, so that God will produce greater holiness in our life. That's the reason why we have to go through hardship. But He will also work in our life to forgive us, to free us from some of that temporal discomfort of His chastening. And in that grace, then we are forgiven. Now, so that's our relationship to God. The next question comes, what about then our forgiveness that is modeled after God's forgiveness? Which brings us to the Ephesians 4.32 passage. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's one of the reasons why Dr. J. Adams entitled his book on forgiveness, From Forgiven to Forgiving. It's a good title. That's a good theological title. We have been forgiven in Christ. Now we are supposed to be forgiving people with one another. Our forgiveness of one another is predicated upon the fact that we too are forgiven people. So, and Jesus even illustrates that in one of his parables about the unmerciful servant. Right? So, we are to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. So, when we grant forgiveness to someone, we, like God, are making a promise. You say, what does that promise constitute? Well, that means we will not remember their sins against them any longer. Just as we saw in Jeremiah 31... In verse 34, just as we saw in Isaiah, we will not remember their sins against them. That means we will never use their sin against them. So practically, we're saying the following three things. Number one says this, I will not remind you of this sin unless it would be absolutely necessary for your good. I will not remind you of your sin unless it would be absolutely necessary for your good. But the point is, I'm not going to hold that sin against you any longer. When I forgive someone, I'm promising them not to hold that against them. Number two, 
Not only that, I will not mention it to anyone any longer unless it would be absolutely necessary for your good. I'm not going to mention it. I'm not going to go around behind your back and talk about this particular issue with other people. You're forgiven. I'm not going to talk about it with my husband or my wife or my girlfriend or my boyfriend or I'm not going to talk about it with uh, my close friends or other people at church. I'm not going to talk about this issue. I'm making a promise to you not to bring this up and talk about it any longer. And thirdly, I will not allow my mind to dwell upon it. And in the issue of forgiveness, this is probably the most difficult of all of them. I'm not going to allow my mind to dwell upon it and become bitter and resentful towards you. I'm promising to forgive you. So, biblical forgiveness involves three things. I'm not going to bring it up to you again so as to hurt you. I'm not going to go around and talk about it behind your back. And I'm not going to dwell on it in my own heart and mind and become bitter and resentful against you. So, I'm not going to bring it up to you. I'm not going to bring it up to others. And I'm not going to bring it up to myself. Biblical forgiveness means those three things. So I'm actively not remembering your sins against you. I'm promising to pardon you. And when I pardon you, that means I'm not going to be throwing that up in your face. I'm not going to go around and talk about it behind your back with other people. I'm not going to dwell on it in my own heart and mind and become bitter and resentful and angry against you. I forgive you. That's forgiveness. Wow. That's pretty extensive. Now, if only Christians practice that kind of forgiveness, that would minimize probably 85% of all the problems that occur in churches. If they just practice biblical forgiveness, there wouldn't be problems. Or at least, not a lot of them. Most problems among Christians comes from the fact we don't practice biblical forgiveness. We choose to dwell on it in our own heart and mind. Or we choose to go around and talk about it to other people. To display our sore toes. Do you know how so-and-so offended me? Do you know what they did to me? So we show off our sore toes to other people. Or we constantly remind that person of the wrong that they did to us after we supposedly have forgiven them. We just bring it up and then we bring it up and then we bring it up and then we bring it up and when opportune times come, we pull it out of our bag and throw it up in their face which just exasperates the problem. And somebody says to you, did you really forgive them? Well, yeah, I did. Now, what you mean by that is I verbally told them that I forgave them but I didn't really practice biblical forgiveness. So now, even though they may have sinned against me, now I'm sinning against them and God. Because I promised them that I would not throw this up in their face so as to hurt them, not go around and talk about it behind their back, not dwell on it in my own heart and mind and become bitter and resentful towards them. That's what I promised them. And yet, I've gone out and done just the opposite. Now I'm sinning against them. That's a pretty serious offense. Well, 
The question is, whom do we forgive? Whom should we forgive? Some passages in Scripture clearly imply that we can only forgive those who ask for it. That's Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. While other passages of Scripture seem to imply we should forgive everyone who sins against us, regardless of whether they ask for it or not. How do you resolve those issues? A passage like Mark chapter 11 and verse 25. How do we understand that apparent discrepancy? Well, a Perhaps the best way is to make a distinction between transactional forgiveness and attitudinal forgiveness. There's a difference. And the scripture does highlight that forgiveness if you study the individual passages within their context. Grab your Bible. Let's go back to the Mark 11.25 passage. Mark chapter 11, and we're interested in verse 25. Whom should we forgive? Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. This is Jesus' teaching. Wow, that's pretty comprehensive. If you have anything against anyone, it's pretty comprehensive. So that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Now you'll notice immediately the context. The context is a person going to the temple to pray. Who's there? Well, the person who's praying is there. And God is there. But the person whom... Whoever the offender is, is not present. So this is just your personal relationship to God. Jesus is saying, in your personal relationship to God, you should so condition your heart that whatever offense others have had against you, you should be willing to forgive them from your heart before God. That's a settled issue. Any offense, any offense. No matter how terrible it is, no matter how terrible it is. Um, In your heart before God, in your heart before God. Anything. That's what we would call attitudinal forgiveness of the Christian. The Christian must always have the right kind of an attitude in relationship to others And that attitude should always be that of forgiveness. Always. Why? The answer again is because we have been forgiven. Whatever those people have done, no matter how horrible that is that they have done to us, we have been forgiven by God an entire lifetime of sin. So because we are forgiven people, God did not have to forgive us, yet He chose to do that. He gave us, and He went on record, a promise of pardon. We have been forgiven an entire lifetime of sin, past, present, and even future. Whatever individual sins people do against us 
are a very, very, very small microcosm of the sins that we have committed against God in our own hearts and actively in our own lives and what we've done and said. That there is hardly any comparison. Because we are forgiven people in our own hearts before God, we should be forgiving people of anything that happens to us at any time in our hearts before Him as we pray. That's attitudinal forgiveness. But you realize that there is another type of forgiveness that the Bible talks about. The attitude of forgiveness is one. And in the attitude of forgiveness, you've got, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Or Matthew 6, verses 12 through 15, and Luke 11, 4, and forgive us our sins, for we also, uh, we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. That should always be the attitude of believers. Even though we may not be able to fully reconcile with everyone who sins against us, our attitude towards them should never be one of anger or bitterness or resentment or any kind of ill will. We should also treat them very kindly and graciously. As Romans 12 verses 17 through 21 says, we are commanded to love everyone as Luke 6 says. We must, even our enemies, we must desire their best which means we will do everything that we can to bring them to repentance and we will always be ready to reconcile with them. That's so key. In fact, let me take you to an Old Testament passage that I think uh, helps to illustrate this, especially with God. Let's go over to Psalm chapter 86 and verse 5. Psalm chapter 86 and verse 5. For you... Lord, are good. And notice this. Ready to forgive. I'm interested in that word ready. God doesn't forgive everybody on the earth. If that's true, everybody would be going to heaven. Then we'd be universalists. God doesn't forgive everybody. We say, well, who does he forgive? God forgives those who repent of their sins. In fact, there will be nobody in heaven who hasn't repented of their sins. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant loving kindness to all who call upon you. And in fact, the phraseology, being ready to forgive, is directly dependent upon the phrase in the next, poetically dependent upon it, in terms of parallelism, because those who call upon you is a euphemism in the Old Testament to refer to calling on you to repent. So God is ready to forgive in a nanosecond of repentance. God is ready to do that. The moment, the second that you ask God 
for forgiveness and you repent of your sins, it is instantaneous on your part. God forgives you. Because, not because you're worthy, but because of His Son, Jesus Christ. God forgives. He's ready to forgive those who repent. That's so key. So this loving attitude that we're talking about sometimes has been called forgiveness of the heart by theologians. It has been called vertical forgiveness because it's mentioned only in the context of prayer. Every time you see this type of issue talked about, it's always within the context of prayer. In fact, John MacArthur's book on forgiveness waxes eloquent about attitudinal forgiveness. He talks about this. It's something that we do before God that enables us to have the right kind of an attitude towards an individual. And you can see this in the Mark 11 passage, in the Luke 23 passage, in the Matthew 6 and Luke 11 passage. So we would conclude something like this. We can conclude from those verses that any time someone wrongs us, we should pray to God in this way. This is just an example. Father, you know what has happened between me and so-and-so. Help me not to be angry or bitter at them, nor seek revenge in any way, but help me to love them and desire only his or her good. Please work in his or her heart and bring them to repentance so that we can have a reconciled relationship. Use me in this way that you can to help him. That's the way we ought to pray. Now for the believer, that help may involve a confrontation according to Matthew 18. And for an unbeliever, it would involve witnessing to him and bringing him to the gospel. So, that would be attitudinal forgiveness. But we understand that there's another type of forgiveness in the New Testament. A forgiveness that is talked about outside of the context of prayer. And that has to do with the interpersonal relationships that we have with one another. And you've got to understand within this transactional type of forgiveness that what is valued here is a person's repentance. That's what is valued. Take your Bible and let's go over to Luke chapter 17. You can see the way Jesus teaches this. Luke chapter 17. Verse 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And I mentioned this the other day. This is that word epitomao, which means a tentative rebuke. It's not, a, it's not an outright full judgmental condemnation of him. There's another Greek word that could be used for that. No. This is a tentative rebuke. In other words, you're willing to hear his side of the story. Um, If your brother sins, rebuke him, but you're willing to hear his side of the story. And if he repents, forgive him. So, forgiveness here is predicated upon your brother repenting and seeking your forgiveness. And then Jesus goes on and says, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now that was tough for the disciples. 
right? Let's say your fellow brother or sister in Christ has an anger problem. And you happen to work with your fellow brother or sister in Christ. And one day you're working with them and they get angry over something that's going on and they turn around and they pop you right in the kisser. You go, whoa, what is this? And they go, oh, you know what? I'm still working on this anger problem. Will you forgive me? That, that really... That was wrong of me. It was wrong. It was sinful against God. It's sinful against you. I shouldn't have done it. You say, okay, yeah, I'm willing to forgive you. The Bible says that's important. So you get back to work. You're both working. A couple hours later, your brother gets really frustrated and you're standing there and pow! You go, whoa! Wait a minute! Wait, what, what's going on here? And he goes, he goes, oh, I'm, oh, you know, I did wrong. I know I shouldn't have done that against you. I, you know, I'm still working on this anger problem. You're thinking to yourself, I want you to work a little bit harder <laughs> on this. I want you to develop this a little bit more. Uh, about an hour later, why well, he asks you to, re- he asks you for forgiveness. He repents of his sin, but an hour later. Third time, you go, okay, now wait a minute here. You're starting to get a little bit puffy here. You know, and your brother says, no. You know, and you're thinking to yourself, now somewhere in the Bible it talks about fruits of repentance. Okay, I haven't seen any fruits here of repentance. But you know what Jesus says here? If your brother sins against you seven times in a day. That happens seven times in a day. So if it's in a day, there's no time to look for fruits of repentance. In other words, he says you've got to forgive them on the basis of their word. I don't know whether I could do that. Well, then you're sitting in the same seat of the disciples. You know why? Because look at what the disciples say in the very next verse. Lord, increase our faith. We can't do this. We need more faith to do this kind of thing. To forgive a brother seven times in a day who comes back and repents? I don't have enough faith to do that. And Jesus responds with characteristic insightfulness by telling a story. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now Jesus is just using an analogy. This is not, Christians didn't go around uprooting mulberry trees and casting them in the sea. This was not an actual literal thing. But he's using it as an analogy. He's saying, it's not the amount of your faith that it's at issue here. They thought it was. I need more faith to do this. It's not the amount of faith that's at issue. It's what your faith is based in that's the issue. And it's also where you're coming from when you say that you have faith. So what do you mean? How you view yourself when it comes to this forgiveness. Oh. Verse 7. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, should say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you may eat and drink? 
He does not thank the slave because he did these things which were commanded him, does he? The obvious answer is no. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, that is by me, should say, we are, here's the way they view themselves, unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. You get the implications here? The implication is pretty straightforward. Slaves out in the field working all day, hot, sweaty, dirty, comes in. His master's been sitting in the shade all day, not really doing a lot of work. The master's hungry. He wants supper. The slave, does he say, okay, first let me clean up a little bit and eat a little bit and then I'll get you something to eat. No, no, no. He doesn't say that. He immediately hops right to it, prepares supper, roast beef, mashed potatoes, gravy, all this stuff, brings it in, serves it, waits until the master has eaten the last spoonful. And then he brings in the dessert. Hot brownies with ice cream. Hot fudge. Whipped cream. Cherry on top. And he watched the master take that dainty little dessert spoon and slowly eat it. Mm. He's been out in the field all day. He's starved to death. Only after the master is finished eating and he clears the table is he able to go in and eat. And he doesn't get any special thanks for that. Why? Because he's only done his duty because he's an unworthy slave. And Jesus says to his disciples, that's exactly the spirit you need to have when you forgive people seven times in a day. It's only what I ought to have done because I am an unworthy slave of Jesus Christ. You see where that comes from? That comes from abiding in grace. That comes from living the gospel. What do you mean living the gospel? Jerry Bridges says in his book, the Christ- Christians should preach the gospel to themselves every day. And what he means by that is the fact that we are wicked, rebellious sinners who have saved by grace and we don't deserve anything but the fires of hell and yet God has given us this. Living within the shadow of the gospel every day. That's grace-motivated living. That's what Jesus is talking about. When you're living grace-motivated living, you realize you're an unworthy slave, so you'll be able to forgive your brother who's just smacked you in the face seven times in one day and come back to you and said, I repent. Forgive him. Wow. That's pretty hefty. Can the world do that? No way. Jose, that's Southern California talk. No. Can't do that. Transactional forgiveness with others is based upon the verbal acknowledgement of repentance. In other words, you cannot forgive that person until they repent. Now, you can forgive them in your heart before God. That's vitally important. You have to do that. You have to forgive so you don't become bitter and resentful. But... The important things, remember what I said? Repentance is elevated here. God wants to see the repentance of the sinner. You can't offer them forgiveness until they've repented. They have to repent. Jesus makes that conditional phrase very, very clear in verses 3 and 4. 
When you forgive people who haven't repented, sometimes I think for a lot of Christians, that becomes an act of arrogance and pride. I'm good enough to forgive you, even though you haven't repented. Hmm, I'm better than you are. No, no, no. No, you can't forgive them until they've repented. Remember how I said? There's not going to be anybody in heaven that hasn't repented. And we talked about repentance last night and what that meant. So what do we do about this? What about these other issues that come up as a result of this whole issue of forgiveness? Well, what about confronting sin versus covering sin? Well, people will say, uh, you know, I, I cover a sin, um, so I don't have to forgive them. Well, grab your Bible just for a moment. Let's take a look what the Bible says about covering. Let's go to Psalm 32 and verse 1. Psalm 32 and verse 1. Because we have a tendency to believe that covering means an, um, I look the other direction. I've covered that sin. I've looked the other direction. The problem is, that's not what the Bible teaches. Psalm 32 and verse 1, in Hebrew parallelism here, he says, How blessed is he whose sins is forgiven, or whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In parallelistic form, what is covering equated with? Forgiveness. Covering equals forgiveness. Go over to Psalm 85 and verse 2. Psalm 85 and verse 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. Here it is. Poetic parallelism. Hebrew parallelism. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. What is covering equated with here? Forgiveness, right? Forgiveness. Exactly. In, from Old Testament times, the issue of covering was not looking the other direction. The issue of covering a sin was actually practicing the process of forgiveness that we've talked about already. Starting with attitudinal forgiveness in your heart and extending to transactional forgiveness between two people when a person has sinned against you. So it starts in the heart. That's where it always has to start. And then it extends to our practice of granting forgiveness to those who repent. That's what covers a sin. Looking the other way just causes sin to build up within the body of Christ. Undealt with sin. And I know of a lot of cases that has caused a lot of problems. You'll hear people say, oh, that guy's a loving guy because he covers everything. Well, it's wrong to cover a sin and not deal with it. When you deal with that sin, when you cover a sin, you actually practice the biblical process of forgiveness. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, love practices the process of forgiveness. That's what it does. Love practices the process of forgiveness. You don't bring it up after it has been biblically covered. You have to be patient, let God's Spirit work. Covering happens when sin is dealt with biblically. What about apologizing versus asking for forgiveness? 
I'll never forget, back several years ago, I did a whole sermon series in our church on the issue of forgiveness. And when I was a pastor. And I started off the sermon series by talking about the fact that I'm trying to teach my kids never to apologize. And I thought one of our elders was going to fall out of his chair. What? I can't believe my pastor just said that from the pulpit. Trying to teach my kids never to apologize. Because you know why? Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say we're supposed to apologize. That's a modern euphemistic way to get around the biblical process of forgiveness. Apologizing actually comes from a Greek word, apologia, which actually means to throw up a defense, an excuse for what you did. Oh, I apologize, but you understand the sun was in my eyes. I had a headache. That's the reason why I said what I did. So I throw up a defense for what I did. No, nowhere in the Bible does it say Christians are supposed to apologize to one another. What are Christians supposed to do? They're supposed to confess their sins to one another and seek forgiveness. Okay? Let's say I did something wrong to your pastor Joe. And I went up to Joe and I said to him, Joe, oh, I apologize. Ah, oh, it was terrible what I did. What will Joe likely say to me? That's okay. No problem. Forget it. Not a big issue. Now you notice, nothing really happened in our relationship. I sinned against him. But nothing really healed that relationship. But if I went to him and I said, Joe, you know, I've sinned against you. I know that I've done something wrong. Now I throw the ball in his court. Will you forgive me? He's got the ball. He's going to say, okay, am I going to forgive that rascal, John? All right. I'll forgive you, John. And he throws the ball back. Now a transaction has taken place. I asked him to forgive me. He thought about it and he promised me forgiveness, which means he's not going to bring it up to me. He's not going to bring it up to others. He's not going to go around and talk about it behind my back. That heals that relationship through that exchange. Apologizing is not a Christian method. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that we can't. You know, if you accidentally bump into somebody, you say, oh, I apologize. That's okay. That's, that's all right to do because your relationship wasn't severed. There wasn't a sin that brought it, you know, you bump into somebody in the, a narrow hallway or something. If you want to say apologize, that's fine. But we're talking about serious things that rupture relationships. Apology doesn't bring the reconciliation that God wants. Remember how I said the other day, forgiveness is the first step in the broader process of reconciliation? That's what God wants. Forgiveness is the first step in rebuilding that reconciled relationship. A proper biblical forgiveness. Alright, what about forgiving God? You ever heard people like that? I know of a woman that went to a Christian psychologist and she was really angry because she was very short. Her husband was short and all of her kids were short. She was angry over that. And she was a professing Christian. And the Christian psychologist said, Well, you're not going to do much better until you forgive God. As if God made a mistake making her short, making her husband short, and her kids short. No, God didn't make a mistake. He's never made a mistake in all of human history. And he didn't begin with her. That implies God's done something wrong, right? 
God never does anything wrong. He's absolutely holy. He's absolutely just. He always does that which is absolutely perfect. We don't forgive God. That becomes a modern psychotherapeutic way just to feel better. Okay, if I can just forgive you, God, for doing this, then I feel much better now. Alright, no, no, no. It's not about us feeling good. It's all about us honoring God. That's the issue. What about forgiving unbelievers? Well, the main thing we're supposed to do with unbelievers, the Bible says, is evangelize them. One of the reasons why we cannot forgive unbelievers is because they can't repent. They don't understand repentance. But the offense that they've done against us is never the issue. It's never the issue. Back around 1990, we had a couple in our congregation that just started attending. And this couple over the years has become very close friends of ours. Dear, dear couple. Uh, Their daughter was killed in a terrible car accident just before she started premarital counseling with me. Drunk driver had been convicted 10 times for drunk driving, went through a stop sign, T-boned their car going 60 miles an hour, drove it right into a telephone pole, killed her. Terrible thing. I'll never forget the night we got the phone call and I rushed to the hospital. And I walked in, the surgeon comes bursting out, had blood all over him, said, are you the pastor? I must have looked like a pastor, I don't know. I said, yes, I am. He says, you got to tell her we did everything we could. Tell him we did everything we could, we couldn't save her. After that, the father of the family was a Christian. The mother thought she was a Christian, but she eventually became a believer. The girl that got killed, her brother became a believer through the process. But in the meantime, both dad and mom started counseling with me. And dad was so angry. He was so angry. He Months went by, and as the trial went to the court, he confessed to me that he, was plot, he had been plotting... He he set himself in the court in just a position near the sheriff where he could grab the sheriff's gun and kill that guy before they could stop him. He was plotting to do that. And the, the father was a big guy. So he probably would have been able to... Um, that sheriff would have had to been pretty big to stop him. He probably would have been able to do it. But he never did that by God's grace. And through the process of counseling and dealing with the issue of forgiveness in their heart before God, they they settled that issue. Fast forward 10 years, this guy's been in prison for 10 years. And a month before we leave the church, they come to us and say, "Uh, would you be willing to go with us to the prison and so that we could sit across the table from this guy and share the gospel with him? And I'm going, oh. I said, sure. So I will go to the prison. They had two huge prison guards there, making sure nothing happens. And they sat across the table, and Terry confessed. That was the father. Terry confessed how much he wanted to kill the guy to his face. He says, you know, God has taken that all away. He said... 
to him, I would love to forgive you, but you've never ever repented because you don't know how to repent. Let me explain to you what the Bible says about repentance. And he just shared with him the gospel. I had tears in my eyes. This guy had tears in his eyes. I look up, these big prison guards, they got tears in their eyes. I'm going, oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. Now, I'd love to be able to tell you that the guy repented there at that particular time. But that's something that everybody that was in that room will never forget. Never. And Terry says to him, I used to think that your big offense against me by killing my daughter was the big thing. But I know that's not the issue. The issue is your offense against God. That's the bigger issue. That's the thing you really haven't repented of. I'm going, yes. Christ was honored in that situation. So, we can't forgive unbelievers. They haven't repented. But that's not the big issue anyhow. The big issue is their relationship to God the Father. What about forgiving dead people? Well, since they can't repent, that's pretty hard to do. So that's where the attitude of your heart takes over. If you have in your heart, you're willing to forgive anybody, anything, as Jesus says, then it's a settled issue. What about forgiving ourselves? Sometimes you'll hear people say that. Oh, I just can't forgive myself. Do you know why people say that? Because they have a very high opinion of themselves. That's the reason why they say that. I just can't forgive myself. I can't believe that I did that. Meaning, I view myself as being much more perfect than that. When if we had a biblical view of ourselves, we'd say the opposite. We'd say, I can't believe I don't do that more often. Because I realize how sinful I am. How ungodly I am. Well, then, the how should we forgive? Well, Luke 17.3 says, If your brother sins and if he repents, forgive him. It should be immediately. We should forgive repeatedly. Luke 17.4 And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times and say, I repent, forgive him. We should forgive lavishly. As 2 Corinthians 2, 5-8, through 8, last night we went there, about the brother who had committed immorality with his stepmother. Rather forgive and comfort, lest somehow such a one should be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So we need to forgive immediately, repeatedly, and lavishly. Why? Why? Because we're forgiven sinners. That's why. We're forgiven because... We are more like Christ when we do. That's what Ephesians 4.32 says. Now, Pastor Joe, by telling that story, I went over time. But um, hopefully it won't wreck the rest of the schedule too bad. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for 
the Bible's clear teaching on attitudinal and transactional forgiveness. I pray that you'll help us to be forgiven, forgiving people, practice biblical forgiveness, because we have been forgiven an entire lifetime of sin. I don't think we fully appreciate the enormity of that issue. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.